The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. As many of you know, we started a journey uh, last week, in fact, going through the book of Acts passage by passage. And so this week we come to the next passage, Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. And before we dive into that, let's pray. Lord, as I personally just sung those words, that redeeming love will be my theme and shall be till I die. Lord, I just have to ask myself, is it really my theme, Lord? Is, is your redeeming love really first in my thoughts, Lord? Are you first in my affections? Lord, the reality is that so often we do fall short. We forget the magnitude of your grace. We forget the glories of this gospel. And Lord, we need our hearts stirred again. Lord, I pray that this morning that you would stir our hearts through these songs we've already sung and through the sermon that we're about to hear. God, stir our hearts for you. That redeeming love might truly be our theme, Lord. That we wouldn't be able to ever, ever get over the gospel, <laughs> but that we would see it with fresh eyes and respond with fresh gratitude and awe and worship every single day, Lord. So please work in our hearts through your word. Teach us and change us everything and in every way that you desire to do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that I've been thinking about lately is how quickly life seems to be passing by. And that might sound like a bit of a random thought, but I think one reason why it's been on my mind so much uh, lately is because tomorrow is my birthday, and specifically my 32nd birthday. And one thing I've noticed with my birthdays for these past few years especially, is that they seem to be coming like more and more frequently, as, as if the time between them is just getting shorter and shorter, because uh, it seems like just a few months ago that I was turning 31, and now, you know, the calendar tells me, tells me I'm telling, uh, turning 32 already. I mean, something just doesn't seem right about that. Uh, it reminds me of a meme I saw on the other day on Facebook, it seems to be making its rounds, perhaps you've seen it as well, that outlines the four phases of life, right? Like first, you have the phase where you believe in Santa. Then, you see, some of you have heard that, yeah. Then you have the phase where you don't believe in Santa. Then you have the phase where you are Santa. And then you have the phase where you look like Santa. So... Thankfully, I'm not in that final phase quite yet, but I, <laughs> I do seem to be approaching it surprisingly quickly, uh, much quicker than I thought I would. And uh, like many of you, 
I want my time on this earth to count for something. It's becoming increasingly apparent that I only have a limited number of years here. So I want to make the best use of them for the glory of God. Like I want to make a meaningful impact. And that's why I found this passage of scripture that we'll be looking at today so encouraging because it reminds us that we can make an impact. In fact, we can make an eternal impact even if we never become famous or have news articles written about us or have the kind of ministry that would be recorded in the history books of future generations. We can have an impact. Now, to set the context for this passage, Jesus has just risen from the dead and given his disciples a mission. The mission of spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. And after the giving him them this mission, he then tells them not to engage in it quite yet, but to sit tight and wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And then after telling him them all of this, he ascends into heaven before their very eyes. And then the story picks up in verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Now, we haven't yet read the entire passage that we're going to be dealing with this morning, but already, just from these verses, we can see the main contours, or the main idea of the passage taking shape, and that is that God changes the world through ordinary people who are prayerfully dependent on him. God changes the world through ordinary people who are prayerfully dependent on him. See, as we look through this list of names mentioned in these verses, one striking feature of all of these folks is how ordinary they are. Four of them were fishermen, obviously not a particularly prestigious occupation. One was basically a con artist. Another was uh, a political revolutionary, I guess we could say. Uh, the one woman listed here, Mary, was the wife of a carpenter. And as for the others, well, they were so ordinary that we hardly know anything at all about them. And yet, it was these people that God used to change the world. I mean, there's a very good chance that your spiritual ancestry and my spiritual ancestry can be traced back to one of these people. And so, God used these ordinary people in truly remarkable and extraordinary ways. And I don't know about you, but I find that to be such an encouragement because it reminds me that God can use any of us 
as well. In fact, that's his pattern. Uh, the Apostle Paul says it well in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So we see it stated explicitly here that we don't have to be among the elite of society in order for God to use us. In fact, Quite the opposite. God actually prefers to use the lowly so that it can be obvious to everyone that he's the one who's actually doing the work. That's his normal pattern, as we see both here in 1 Corinthians 1 and back in Acts 1. So don't think that God can't or won't use you. If these verses show us anything, they show us that there's no limit to what God can do through you, regardless of how ordinary you are. It doesn't matter if you have an impressive spiritual pedigree or not, whether you have been to college or not, whether you have a lot of money or a lot of personal charisma or a high social standing or native talent or not. God's pattern is actually to use ordinary people. Yet at the same time, that's not to say that God uses anyone regardless of any qualifications or character traits at all. These verses in Acts show us that God does indeed use a particular kind of person. In the words of our main idea, those who are prayerfully dependent on him. And we can see that in verse 14 where it says that these individuals, quote, were devoting themselves to prayer. Now imagine what you would have been inclined to do if Jesus had just given you directly, personally, this mission that he had just given to them. Like he had just laid all of that on your shoulders. Go and start a movement for the gospel that's going to reach the ends of the earth. I mean, that's... If you're just 120 people, that's, that's pretty overwhelming, right? So imagine how you'd respond to that. I'm sure you would give some time to prayer, but what, how would the bulk of your time be spent? Honestly, if you're anything like most Americans, it would probably be spent some kind of strategy meeting, right? You would be probably get, getting together to try to figure this out of how you are going to accomplish this. Probably a lengthy series of strategy meetings. And I'm not going to lie, my, my natural inclination, my natural tendency, unsanctified, would be to do that very same thing. I mean, I'd be sitting there with my laptop open and a stack of books on the table by the experts and, and probably a whiteboard that we would be using all marked up, trying to figure out how to accomplish this thing. And yet, that's not what these early Christians did, is it? Instead, we're simply told 
that they prayed. And they didn't just pray token prayers or even have a few token prayer meetings. No, they devoted themselves to prayer, it says. Like they were serious about it. You see, there's a very real sense in which prayer is where the battle for the advance of the gospel is won. Of course, there are a lot of other things that Christians need to do that are very necessary in order to get the gospel out there. Obviously, if we want to reach people with the gospel, we have to actually be talking with them about it in various contexts. And yet, after studying this material in Acts and reflecting on my own personal experience, I'm convinced that the real battle is won in prayer. The rest of our outreach and witnessing efforts uh, basically just amount to occupying the territory already won on our knees. It's kind of like in the Civil War, you know, when the Union troops decisively defeated the Confederate troops at the Battle of Appomattox Courthouse in 1865. That battle officially brought a close to the Civil War. After which, the Union troops moved to formally occupy Confederate territory. So the battle was won where? At Appomattox, right? And everything that happened after that was just the result and the outworking of that victory. And I believe there's a very real sense in which prayer works that way as well. Because you and I, as Christians, are in a very real battle for people's souls. And yet that battle is won in places that you might not expect at first. It's won in the armchair of an elderly widow who's not even physically able to, to join us on Sundays and who can't even get out of the house that much other times to share the gospel, but who faithfully prays for our church's outreach endeavors day after day after day. It's one in a Wednesday evening prayer meeting at our church building with just 10 people in attendance, but who are faithfully praying for a movement of God in us and through us. It's one at the dining room table in the morning as a, as a brand new Christian who doesn't really know even that much about prayer, but nevertheless makes it a point to just do the best they can and to spend five minutes each day in intentional prayer for those who aren't yet Christians. Guys, that, <laughs> that is where the battle's won. The rest of what we do is just occupying the territory. So these early Christians in Acts 1 are devoting themselves to prayer, it says. And then out of this prayerfulness, God places something on Peter's heart. Beginning in verse 15, the passage describes how Peter stands up among the early Christians, who numbered about 120 people in all, and explains to them that somebody needs to be appointed to take the place of Judas Iscariot as the 12th apostle. In case you're not familiar, Judas had betrayed Jesus and had then committed 
suicide, which is described in a rather graphic way in this passage. And so now Peter says they need to appoint someone to take his place. And let's just take note of the fact that this is the first big decision that these early Christians have had to make. And it really is a big one. I mean, there are few decisions more important than who to appoint to leadership. And not only that, but this particular decision is occurring at such a critical point in time that it's pretty well guaranteed to echo throughout the corridors of subsequent church history. What they choose or what the decision they make here is going to have a monumental impact. And I believe there's a lot that we can learn here from these verses about decision-making. I've encountered a lot of Christians who find it rather difficult to make significant life decisions and who have asked me on numerous occasions how best to discern God's will in various situations. Uh, Maybe they're wondering about whether it's God's will for them to marry a particular person or to accept a particular job or uh, to move to a particular place. Or maybe it's not even something quite on that level of importance that they're wondering about, but is still something important nonetheless. So how then can you discern the will of God? Let's say that you want God to use you, as we've been talking about. You want to make an impact. In the words of our main idea, you even want to change the world. Well, how then can you make decisions about various things that are going to support that? How can you discern God's will? Well, I believe it's a combination of four primary elements that we see in this passage. Uh, We might call them ingredients Four ingredients for discerning the will of God. The first is spiritual alignment. Notice in our passage how this decision came about. As we've already noted in verse 14, they were devoting themselves to prayer. And we're not told exactly what they were praying about, but they appear to have been devoting themselves to just prayer in general. And I believe that had the effect of aligning their hearts with God's heart. And it's almost impossible to overstate how important that is for making decisions that glorify God. One of the prayers I've actually found myself praying over the past several months a lot is, God, align my heart with yours. Because I want to be passionate about what he's passionate about. I want to be sensitive to what he's sensitive to. I want his perspective on things to become my perspective on things. So I pray, align my heart with yours. And that's the first step to making decisions that glorify God. If you're going to make those kinds of decisions, you first need your heart to be in alignment with God's. And that happens through prayer, like we see here in verse 14, and also, of course, by immersing ourselves in the Bible. I like to, I heard one pastor call it one time, getting into the Word until the Word 
gets into you. I love that, just letting your mind marinate in the scriptures. And that leads us to the second ingredient for discerning God's will that we see here, which is scriptural guidance. In verses 17 through 20, Peter refers to the scriptures as the lens through which he's viewing both the betrayal of Judas and as his reason for suggesting that they need to replace Judas. And sometimes the situations we face are like that, where the Bible gives specific instructions about how we're supposed to act in that situation. So if you're ever wondering about whether to cheat on your taxes or not, or whether to be faithful to your spouse or not, or whether to forgive somebody or not, you really don't have to wonder about that because we're already told how to respond in those situations. And then, of course, there are other times where the Bible's not so specific. And it speaks not to our situation specifically, but it speaks in general principles that are very relevant for our situation. And so, the second ingredient in discerning God's will is to just take into account whatever the Bible says about your situation, whether it's by specific instructions or by general principles. And then the third ingredient is what I'll call sanctified reasoning. And by that, I simply mean asking yourself, what makes the most sense here? We see Peter doing something akin to this in verses 21 and 22, where he tells the rest of the group that the man they choose to replace Judas needs to be, quote, one of the men who have accompanied us during all of the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. In other words, he can't be a newcomer. Like, if he's going to bear witness about Jesus, it just makes sense that he be one of the men who personally saw Jesus for the entirety of his ministry. And that's what I mean by sanctified reason. Just figuring out what makes the most sense. Think about your family. Think about your giftedness. Think about finances. Think about the level of risk you're willing to tolerate. Think about all the practical things that you need to consider in order to make a prudent decision. It's probably not a bad idea even to write out a list of pros and cons and use that to help you evaluate your options. So it's not unspiritual to consider practical realities. And then finally, we see the fourth ingredient for discerning God's will, specific prayer. In contrast to the more general prayer to which the early Christians were devoting themselves back in verse 14, we now find them praying a much more specific prayer about this particular decision in verses 24 and 25. After selecting two men who seem to be good choices to replace Judas, they pray for God's guidance and for him to make his will known. They say, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So a very specific prayer. 
Now, after that, as you can see in the text, they do employ a rather interesting method for discerning God's will that is frequently called casting lots. Today, uh, we might compare it to flipping a coin. And I know that might sound rather odd at first, like, you know, hmm, how are we going to make this really important decision that's going to affect the entire trajectory of Christian history? Hey, I know, let's flip a coin. (laughs) But just so you know, that even though that might not sound very wise at first, you do have to understand a few things, uh, especially that this practice of casting lots actually had a lot of background in the Old Testament and was actually regarded rather highly as a method based on God's sovereignty and through which God would make his will known. Uh, For example, we actually see uh, casting lots to be commanded as a part of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And it was also the system that they used to uh, determine God's will about the allotment of land in the book of Joshua when they were distributing the promised land that they had conquered. However, once the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, we don't find any more mention of this practice being employed among God's people. So that's why Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit, that is why it's probably not the best idea for us to employ that method today. Like whenever it comes time for us to appoint another elder, I'll just say we're probably not going to flip a coin to see what the best decision is. Um, It seems as though now that we have the Holy Spirit, God desires that we discern his will, not through casting lots or any similar method, but rather through the four elements for discerning his will that we find in this passage. Spiritual alignment, scriptural guidance, sanctified reasoning, and specific prayer. So, to give you just one practical example, uh, when Becky and I were considering moving here to Pittsburgh, from Alabama to Pittsburgh in order to start this church, we realized that that was a pretty big decision. And we wanted to make sure, first of all, that we were in spiritual alignment with God in making that decision. And I do believe that we were. Uh, We were seeking God each day through prayer and Bible reading. Uh, We were seeking to surrender to whatever God's will might be for our lives. And and we were seeking to cultivate a passion for the things God is most passionate about. Namely, the glory of his name and the advance of his gospel. And not only were we uh, seeking spiritual alignment with God, but we were also considering biblical principles. Honestly, this one was kind of easy. I mean, because Jesus told us to go and make disciples. And last time I checked, there's a lot of people here in Pittsburgh who are in need of that. And so it really wasn't that difficult. And of course, there were other principles that we wanted to consider as well, um, such as the qualifications for an elder and what the Bible teaches about a biblical church planting methodology and, and different things like that. But we did just work through all of those things. And third, we employed sanctified reasoning. We considered our areas of giftedness, 
and our natural temperaments and our life experiences and our financial situation and also just the desires of our hearts. All of those things were factors in our decision. And then finally, and really throughout the whole process, we prayed. <laughs> we prayed a lot. And then, after all that, we just did it. We pulled the trigger. We didn't wait for some special sign that God wanted us to move to Pittsburgh. We didn't sit down and see if we could try to, to feel out a, a shiver in our liver, right? We didn't close our eyes and, and open the Bible and put our finger down and then see what verse our finger happened to land on. Because God had already told us in his word to use our lives for the sake of the gospel. He tells all Christians that, right? And he had already put a desire in our hearts to come to Pittsburgh, and he hadn't made it evident any way in which that would be an unwise decision to do. And so, we just did what we wanted. And that's an incredibly liberating approach to, find, to discerning God's will. And that's my advice for you as well. Make sure you have these four ingredients for discerning the will of God squared away. And then just do what you want as a person who loves Jesus and wants to see him glorified. So in light of this passage, let me just ask you, what is God calling you to do? It could be something huge like moving somewhere or it could be something relatively simple. Maybe God wants you to have a gospel conversation with a person in your life. Or maybe he wants you to pursue a close relationship with someone for the sake of the gospel. Or maybe he wants you to explore some kind of ministry endeavor, either inside or outside of our church. What is God calling you to do? And again, let me encourage you with what I believe is the main idea of this passage, that God changes the world through ordinary people who are prayerfully dependent on him. He did it through the people listed in this passage, and he can do it through you as well. And also keep in mind that most of the people mentioned here in Acts 1 aren't even mentioned by name. Remember, verse 15 said that there were how many people? 120 people among the early Christians. And yet the only ones mentioned by name are the 11 original apostles and Mary and the new apostle Matthias and the other guy who got passed over, Barsabbas. The rest are nameless Christians. And you know what? That's the way the vast majority of Christians are in church history. Nameless Christians who die in obscurity. They not only start out as ordinary, but they continue to be regarded as ordinary throughout their lives. And yet, for many of them, God still uses them in remarkable ways. In fact, I think it's safe to say that the vast majority 
of the advance of the gospel throughout these past 2,000 years has been accomplished through ordinary, obscure Christians who are just faithful to whatever God has called them to do. I mean, sure, you have a handful of the famous Christians like the Apostle Paul and St. Patrick and you know, William Carey and Billy Graham. I mean, you have these guys who are used by God in a truly extraordinary way and, and who see an unusual amount of fruitfulness in their ministry and whose names naturally appear in the history books. But the vast majority of people who come to faith in Christ do so not through the ministries of these famous Christians, but rather through the efforts of ordinary Christians who are just faithful to reach out to those around them and to use whatever opportunities they have and whatever platform they have and whatever influence they do have for the sake of the gospel and who are then content to die in obscurity. And who knows? God may end up using you in ways you never expected. For example, back in the 19th century, there was a man named Edward Kimball. And if you haven't ever heard of him, that's not surprising since hardly anyone has. Edward was just a regular guy who happened to teach a Sunday school class for his local church. And he must have had a lot of patience because he taught the class for the young boys of the church. Uh, I myself used to teach a Sunday school class for several years for the, the middle school boys. It was me and this other guy and, and about 15 or 20 middle school boys. And let me say, it, it was just, it was interesting. All right. Uh, it, it was quite the time. Uh, middle school boys can, not all of them, but they can be quite a handful. Uh, thinking back, I, I think I might have experienced more sanctification from some of those boys, uh, just from dealing with them, than I actually experienced through the lesson material <laughs> itself. There was a lot of sanctification taking place on my part. But Edward Kimball taught that class. And one boy in particular seemed to others to be just a lost cause. And so Edward made an intentional effort to pursue him individually, even outside of class, and talk with him about the gospel. One day he actually went to the shoe store where this boy worked, I guess it was a family business, and he talked to him about Jesus there. And that visit actually resulted in this young boy coming to faith in Jesus. And you know what that young boy's name was? D.L. Moody, one of the widely regarded as one of the greatest evangelists ever to live. Certainly the greatest of the 19th century. God used D.L. Moody to lead tens of thousands of people to Jesus. Uh, some even estimate that as many as a million people may have come to faith through Moody's preaching. And yet the story gets even better. Because God used D.L. Moody to bring a man named Wilbur Chapman to salvation, who was then used to bring a man named Billy Sunday to salvation, another notable evangelist, who was then used to bring a man named Mordecai Ham to salvation, who was then used to bring none other than Billy Graham to the Lord. And all of this happened because one man named Edward Kimball 
was faithful to reach out to some of the more difficult boys in his Sunday school class with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, you can have an enormous impact if you'll simply be faithful to minister to those around you, to seek to lead them to Jesus so that hopefully, Lord willing, they could lead others to Jesus and so that in turn, those others can lead still others to Jesus. So just think about how your impact can multiply. I mean, think, as the old saying goes, about how many apple trees are contained in a single apple seed. So once again, we come back to this idea that God changes the world through ordinary people. The Edward Kimballs of the world. Ordinary people who are prayerfully dependent on Him. And yet one thing that's absolutely critical for us to keep in mind regarding all of this is that in order for you to change the world in an eternally significant way, you first have to be changed by God. See, there's a difference between what we're talking about this morning and the kind of inspirational speech that you might hear at a high school graduation. Like, we're not just talking about some generic call to make a difference in the world. Now, we are talking about making an impact in a very specific way and with a very specific message. The message of the gospel. Notice in verse 22 that Peter refers to this as a call to be a witness to his resurrection. Meaning the resurrection of Jesus. That's our call. See, the story begins with our rebellion against God and the judgment that we deserve because of our sinful ways. And yet we learn in the Bible that God sent his own son, Jesus, to enter this world as a real human being, fully God, fully man, on a rescue mission to save us. And the way Jesus did that was by living a life of sinless perfection and then dying on the cross to take the punishment for our sins, right? Bearing on himself the judgment that we deserved and then rising from the dead to secure our salvation. That's the message of the gospel. And the first step to God working through you for the advance of the gospel is to experience his work in you as he changes you from the inside by the power of this gospel message. So have you yet experienced that supernatural change of heart? Have you yet put your trust in Jesus as your all-sufficient Savior and as the only hope that you have, the only hope anybody has for eternal life? Trusting not in your, your good works or your religious observances or anything of the sort, but trusting in Jesus alone. He's the one needed so desperately, not by just this world collectively, but by you and I individually. 